All right, well, good morning, church. Uh, last Sunday, we started a three-week study on the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24. We're looking at Jesus' prophecy on the Mount of Olives. And just like we promised, we're going to go deep. We're going to dive into prophecy, history, and biblical theology. We said that we were going to get really nerdy uh, during the next three Sundays. Uh, we're going to be more uh, detailed than we usually are. Usually our normal messages, you know, are inspirational and practical. And uh, we try to do it that way. But we're going to go the opposite route, actually, uh, this, uh, this series. We're going to go more intellectual. And uh, we're definitely uh, going to um, look at more of a detailed view of things. And so it may get a little tedious. It may even get dry at times. But I challenge you, hang in there. Uh, look into God's word, um, take notes, and I really believe that if you dig deep, then it's going to be very rewarding in your life. And so in order to do this right, uh, we have to do what we did last week, okay? If you would put uh, your hands on top of your heads, and what we want to do is we want to take off our 21st century baseball cap, right? The one you're wearing right now, the one you feel really comfortable with, take that off, and what I want you to do is I want you to now put on the first century Hebrew Sudra. So you're taking off the 21st century understanding of think, things, the contemporary culture and ideas and understanding that we all come in with. And I want you to take that off and I want you to put on now the first century understanding, the ancient Hebrew mindset of the first century. Now you might ask, why are we studying Jesus' prophecy in Matthew chapter 24. I mean, why are we actually spending three weeks on this? Well, number one, because it's a big piece in studying Jesus as Messiah. We have been going through the book of Matthew, and the gospel has been very rewarding, and we know that Matthew is speaking to the Jews, and he's proving to them that Jesus indeed is the Messiah, and he proves it by going through prophecy. And so we know that the prophets predicted that when Messiah appeared on earth or appears on earth, that he would bring both salvation and judgment, that he would bring salvation to those who make covenant with him. Whosoever will, he will bring good news and healing and freedom, and he will uh, baptize them in the Holy Spirit, and that is salvation. But not only that, the Bible also says that he will bring judgment to those who break covenant with him. Not only will he proclaim the favor of the Lord, he's also to proclaim the vengeance of the Lord. Not only is he uh, bringing the baptism of the Holy Spirit, he's also bringing the baptism of fire. And we said the fire is a picture of judgment. And I want you to know that Jesus fulfills both perfectly. And that's something we have to understand. The other reason, and I think the bigger reason of why we're studying this prophecy, is because I wanted to strengthen our Christian faith. This is not an academic exercise. This is not a history class or a history lesson. Matthew 24 proves that Jesus is who he claimed to be, and that his promises will always come to pass. Can I get an amen? Amen. And here we see that all of his promises are yes and amen. Now, there are some, we talked about it last week, who want to push Matthew chapter 24 far into the future, far into our future. 
but we said that in doing so, we dilute and destroy the profound significance of Jesus' power and authority in fulfilling prophecy. Did you know that Jesus actually gives timestamps to his prophecies? Matthew, in the beginning of this prophecy uh, on the Mount of Olives, he gives us Matthew chapter 23, verse 26, and he says, I tell you the truth, this is Jesus speaking, all this will come upon this generation. Matthew records that. A generation, we said, is 40 years. So it would happen in their lifetime. And at the end, after he gives all the signs, at the end, he timestamps it again in Matthew 24, 34. <clears throat> I tell you the truth. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Jesus doubles down on his timestamp of prophecy, and he tells us that this will happen in their lifetime. Now, there are skeptics and anti-Christians who look at this, and they have heard what many well-meaning, many great, faithful Christians who love the Lord have said about Matthew 24 that we need to put it way into the future, and they have argued that because uh, people, Christians, have said that this was for the future, they argue that Jesus was a fraud and a fake, that he was a false prophet because what he said about that generation did not come true. And can I share with you, that's a legitimate point. Because in Deuteronomy 18, the Bible says that if you speak a prophecy from God, God says if it doesn't get fulfilled, then that was a false prophecy. That person is a false prophet. And so if Jesus said it would happen in this generation, and it didn't happen in that generation, then what the skeptics and anti-Christians uh, you know, throwed at the wall, actually, that's a legitimate point. And can I share with you, that perspective has affected even the giants of our faith. I want to show you a picture of C.S. Lewis. Would you look at it right now? C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite Christian authors. As a matter of fact, <clears throat> I have referred to C.S. Lewis many times, and you guys know this. Uh, I wanted to share that Ravi Zacharias a couple days ago has passed and has gone home to be with the Lord. It's bittersweet in the sense that we really wish he were here. We feel for the family. We mourn because such a great man of God. I believe this generation, C.S. Lewis, has passed away and has gone to be with the Lord. And so I mourn that. But at the same time, I rejoice because he's in the presence of Jesus. He's hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. And he has truly been that in our lives. And so, of course, we mourn for the family. We mourn that we're not able to continue to hear him <clears throat> speak and teach, but we are excited that he is home to be with the Lord. <clears throat> but let me say, C.S. Lewis was like that, you know, in my life, and I'm sure he's been in your life too. That's why it's so shocking what C.S. Lewis says in one of his uh, articles. And I want you to take a look at this, because this is what C.S. Lewis says uh, in the world's last night. And quote, look at it. Say what you like, we shall be told the apocalyptic beliefs of the first century Christians have proved to be false. It is clear from the New Testament that they all expected the second coming in their own lifetime. And worse still, they had every reason, and one you will find embarrassing, their master had told them so, and indeed created their delusion. He said in so many words, this generation shall not pass until all these things be done. And he was wrong. He clearly knew no more about the end of the world than anyone else. It is certainly the most embarrassing verse in all of the Bible. 
Is that surprising that C.S. Lewis said that? The posture of Lewis was to timidly, sheepishly apologize. He was embarrassed at what Jesus had to say. But let me ask you something. Should that be our posture today? Is what C.S. Lewis said even true? And here's my point. If we would just let the Bible speak in its correct context, if we would let the Bible speak the author's original intent, then what we saw as a negative embarrassment, we would rightly see as positive evidence, an absolutely powerful proof that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah. This is certainly not the most embarrassing verse in all the Bible. This is rather the most exciting verse in all of the Bible. Because Matthew 24 was not meant to be a negative apology. It was meant to be a positive apologetic. Let me say that again. Matthew 24 was not meant to be a negative apology. It was meant to be a positive apologetic. And by the way, that is how the church throughout history saw Matthew 24, as a powerful confirmation of Jesus as Messiah. This view that Matthew 24 was for the future has really only been around for 150 years. Think about that in context. The church has been around for 2,000 years, and this particular view has only been around for 150 novel years. The historical perspective has overwhelmingly been that this has been fulfilled, like Jesus said, in 70 AD. It was supported by the early church, the church fathers, the reformers, the Puritan divines, revivalists like John Wesley and George Whitfield, pastors like John Gill, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and Matthew Henry. They all recognized that Jesus correctly pronounced this and saw it in 70 AD. And so let's put on the first century Hebrew Sudra and let's ask, how did the first century audience hear Matthew chapter 24? And you're going to marvel at how perfectly Jesus predicts this. So last Sunday, we studied the questions the disciples asked. What is the sign for your coming in judgment? And when will the end of the old covenant age be? They're not asking when is his second coming, his full and final coming. And they're not asking the end of the world. They're asking what the sign for your coming in judgment will be and when the end of the old covenant age would be as well. And so we studied the sign of birth pains last week. And we said that the first, uh, <clears throat> the first sign was false messiahs and prophets. And remember, I gave you a list. There's a record, 120 false messiahs that came onto the scene after Jesus. Uh, the second sign was wars and rumors of wars. And I gave you a list that many numerous wars suddenly were fought during the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And then the third sign was famines. The fourth sign was earthquakes. And I give you a list that no period marked was marked by so many. And we concluded that Jesus perfectly predicts them all in their remarkable context. Isn't that beautiful? Well, this morning, we want to look at the sign of tribulation. So look at it with me in verse 9. Let's look at it. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. You will be hated by all nations because of me. And at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. Uh, drop to verse 12. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. 
The fifth sign is the sign of persecution. Now, the greatest danger to the early church in its first 40 years of existence was the conflict between the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. Let me say that again. If you're taking notes, write this down. It's very important. The greatest danger to the early church in its first 40 years of existence was the conflict between the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. The leaders of Israel, the religious establishment in Jerusalem, rejected Jesus as Messiah. They rejected the new covenant that he brought as false. And they spent 40 years, the next 40 years, trying to stamp it out. We can see, actually from the New Testament, proof that what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse really did happen. I want you to notice, uh, actually in Luke chapter 21, Matthew gives an Olivet Discourse, and he says, then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. Luke actually gives the Olivet Discourse, and he sheds more light on this particular passage in verse 12. Look at it. And they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors, all on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them. Now, when we take both accounts, we get a picture of what Jesus said was going to happen. And I want you to notice, I give you a list of persecution in the book of Acts. We don't even have to go to extra biblical uh, material. We can look at the history of the book of Acts and see how this prophecy was uh, fulfilled. Uh, Let me go through it with you. Uh, Peter and John stand trial before the religious leaders of Jerusalem in in Acts chapter 4. And they are given empowerment by the Holy Spirit to speak their defense, just as Jesus had said that they would. Stephen was brought before the Sanhedrin and in the power of the Holy Spirit gives a defense that so irritates and and, and angers them that they actually put him to death in Acts chapter 7. Great persecution happens on the Christians, and there's a systematic arrest and imprisonment and even execution of Christians in Acts chapter 8. Saul is given authority by the religious leaders to arrest and imprison Christians in Acts chapter 9. Herod murders the apostle James to gain favor with the religious leaders, and he puts Peter into prison so that he could... uh, so that he could put him to death later in Acts chapter 12, but Peter is miraculously delivered. Jews from the synagogues stone Paul, attempting to kill him, but he survives in Acts 14. The Jews from the temple riot and attempt to kill Paul in Acts chapter 21. Paul stands trial before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 23. Forty men plot to murder Paul. They make an oath not to eat or to drink until they have put him to death in Acts chapter 23. Paul stands trial and defends himself before Governor Felix in Acts chapter 24. Paul stands uh, trial and defends himself before Governor Festus in Acts chapter 25. Paul stands trial and defends himself before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. And Paul goes to Rome to stand before uh, Caesar in Acts chapter 27. We see that all of it was fulfilled just like Jesus said it would. Look at verse 9. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. Let me explain this. The old covenant Judaism was very unique in the empire because it was monotheistic. Uh, Monotheism, it's not like... uh, 
there were no other monotheistic religions out there. But in the Roman Empire, really Judaism was the only one. So it had a tolerated status in the Roman Empire because most polytheists saw monotheism as an insult to their gods. So it was a tolerated status among the Roman Empire. But the Jewish leadership did not see Christianity as a part of Judaism. They were trying to stamp it out. So they would not allow it under their toleration umbrella. So Christianity actually was not recognized nor protected officially in Rome. It was technically an illegal religion. Christianity was persecuted by religious Judaism and also revulsed by Gentile polytheism because they were monotheistic. It was an insult to their gods. And so listen to me, Christianity was misunderstood, mistrusted, and marginalized at large. It was not recognized or protected officially by Rome. Now this is all important because it comes to a head in 64 AD. A massive fire destroyed much of the city of Rome, the heart of the empire. And Emperor Nero was blamed by the Roman citizens. It was actually rumored that he was creating poetry and singing and uh, playing on his lyre as Rome burned. Now, that was not good for Nero. And so Nero had to shift the blame to some group that he could use as a scapegoat. And guess who he decided to use? He decided on the misunderstood, marginalized, monotheistic Christians who were mistrusted by the polytheistic Gentiles and maligned by the monotheistic Jews. They were the patsies, the easy prey because they had no protection under Rome. So a smear campaign was born to slander Christians as the ones responsible for the fire, and they were made to look evil in their mysterious practices. And you know what? The propaganda worked. The whole empire was incensed and enraged by Christians. And Nero capitalized on that. He punished Christians in sadistic ways. He would dip Christians in pitch and use them as candles to light his garden parties. He would dress Christian, children's in, Christian children excuse me, in lambskins to be torn apart in the arena by wild animals. The tradition says that Peter was crucified upside down because of Nero's orders. Paul was beheaded. That was a mercy privilege because he was a Roman citizen. And Christians were hated uh, by all as the dregs of society, as the scum of the earth, just as Jesus said in verse 9. I want you to notice the next a sign, the sign of apostasy, because persecution leads to apostasy. Now, again, let me say the greatest danger to the early church in its first 40 years was the conflict between the old covenant versus the new covenant. Now, let's look in verse 10. It says, at that time, many will turn away from the faith. Verse 12, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Because of the systematic persecution brought on by the Old Covenant Judaism of Israel to stamp out the Christians, they were systematically arrested, imprisoned, and executed. Because family members rejected Christian relatives, even ones in their immediate family, they, they would betray them to the authorities. And many Christians were tempted to turn their backs on Jesus and the New Covenant. They were tempted to go back to Old Covenant Judaism. Now this begs the question, why was there such a conflict between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? I mean, think about this. Didn't God create and institute both covenants? Is the Old Covenant evil or wicked? Let me share with you that both covenants are good. 
Both covenants have been created and instituted by God. They're good, but both covenants are not the same. One is temporary and the other is permanent. I was thinking of a way to illustrate this, and I came up with an illustration. It's not a perfect one, but I think it will illustrate exactly what I'm, uh, I'm trying to get at with you. Have you ever bought a butterfly garden kit? Do you see the picture? I bought one of these on Amazon because I wanted actually to delight Alexis, and I thought this would be a good way to educate her. But it's actually a way that you can actually see a butterfly go from caterpillar stage all the way to being a butterfly. And I thought it was a beautiful thing. Alexis loved it. But to be honest with you, just between you and me, I loved it even more. I was thrilled with it because I got a chance to see uh, nature uh, take its course. It was so wonderful. Well, the relationship between the old covenant and the new covenant is like the relationship between a cocoon and a butterfly. The cocoon is a temporary home for the butterfly. It's important because it provides a place to grow and mature. The presence of the cocoon, when you see it, lets you know that the butterfly is maturing that the butterfly is coming, and the cocoon actually awaits the emergence of the butterfly. And at the proper time, the butterfly sheds the cocoon, and it comes, and it becomes the natural focus of our attention. And when the butterflies started coming out, there were about six of them that we had in that kit. Uh, They all came out pretty much at the same time, and we had so much fun witnessing the beauty of the butterfly coming out. Our family marveled Uh, at the beauty and grace of those creatures. And when we let them go in our backyard, it was amazing to see six butterflies actually fly away. I mean, you could almost hear the music as they kind of fluttered away. And we would yell out, we'd say, bye-bye, beautiful butterflies. My uh, daughter Alexis would say this, I would say it, bye-bye, beautiful butterflies, because that was what we focused our attention on. Let me tell you, the butterfly is the natural focus, not the cocoon. Now, why am I saying something so obvious? Well, the cocoon was important and necessary for a time. But after the butterfly has flown away, it has served its purpose. There's no need for it now. To focus on the cocoon is ridiculous. It makes no sense because the cocoon is just an empty shell. It's an empty husk. There's no life to it. When the butterflies flew away, I didn't go back to marvel at the cocoon. I didn't take it and put it in plexiglass and put it on my shelf with my Funko Pops. I didn't do that. You know what I did? I took it and I threw the cocoons away in the trash because it's not necessary anymore. Do you see what I'm getting at? The relationship between the old covenant and the new covenant is much like that. The old covenant was a temporary placeholder. Its laws and sacrifices and institutions was to remind you of God's holiness and man's brokenness. That because of sin and because of the fall, there is a separation. But God loves mankind and God desires to dwell with mankind. And so he provided an old covenant. Its laws and sacrifices and institutions was to provide a temporary way for humans who were fallen and broken to have limited access to a supremely holy, uh, absolutely righteous, sovereign God. But this old covenant, this temporary, limited old covenant, was there to foreshadow something greater, to foreshadow the arrival of Messiah. And And it prophesied the coming of a better covenant, a new covenant. And we talked about it actually last week in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. 
And at the proper time, Messiah emerged from the prophecies of the old covenant. And he came and fulfilled them. We talked about that. His mission was to fulfill the old covenant. And like the cocoon, Messiah sheds it. The old covenant was important and necessary before, but now Messiah in his new covenant age has begun. It's here. And the old covenant has served its purpose. There's no need for it. To focus on the empty shell and husk would be to deny the butterfly and to choose uh, to use the cocoon improperly. And that's the focus here. If Messiah has come, to continue in the old covenant becomes idolatry. If Messiah is here and his new covenant is here, to propagate the old covenant would be to invite slavery. It it would be to use it in a way that it was never intended to be used. And so don't focus on the dead, empty cocoon. Focus rather on the risen butterfly. I need to get an amen for that. Isn't that awesome? Yes. The book of Hebrews, written in 64 AD, addresses people who were tempted to go back to the cocoon. They were tempted to turn away from Jesus and the new covenant and to go back to the old covenant system, the empty husk, the empty shell. And the warning of the book of Hebrews is not to do that, not to go back, not to shrink back. Now, this is six years before judgment. Jesus prophesied judgment on the covenant breakers and the sweeping away of the old covenant system and the temple in 70 AD. This was 64 AD. Now, they didn't know when it was going to happen, but they knew it was near because Jesus had prophesied it within their generation. In that context, look at Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 13. Look at it. It's awesome. He says, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. Did you see that? Soon. Hebrews is saying that the old covenant is obsolete. It's the old cocoon and it's about to be thrown away just as Messiah predicted it would be. Do you see how the early church believed what Jesus had prophesied in the Olivet Discourse? Now, let's go a few chapters to Hebrews chapter 10. Look at it in verse 37. For in just a little while... He who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith, and if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Hebrews is saying exactly what Jesus prophesied in Matthew 24. Jesus is coming in judgment very soon, so don't shrink back to the husk or the shell of the old covenant cocoon. In just a little while, God is going to throw it all away. I want you to uh, go a couple chapters to Hebrews chapter 12. Look at it. It says, you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. Verse 26, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he, uh, he has promised once more, I will not only shake the earth, but also the heavens. When was a promise like that made? in the Olivet Discourse, that he is going to shake the heavens. Verse 27, the words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, 
Let us be thankful and so worship God with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Are you getting what Hebrews is saying? This is giving me chills. Hebrews is promising the created things, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the rules, the genealogies, the temple, all the old covenant things that were temporary, all of it will be shaken and consumed by fire. Remember, fire is a picture of judgment. Hebrews is saying, don't go back to the shell. Don't go back to the husk of the empty cocoon. It's about to be thrown away. That age is about to end. And what remains? A kingdom that cannot be shaken. Do you get that? Jesus, his messiahship, his eternal kingdom, that's the stuff that can't be shaken. Amen? Amen. Let's look in verse 13. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Now this is important. It fits well actually with next Sunday's message when we study the actual destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And so this is important, but we're going to push it back and explain it actually next week. I want us to look finally at the sign of evangelization. Okay. And here is where many of you have just switched to wearing your 21st century baseball cap. I see it right now, okay? You guys have put on, maybe even without knowing, you've put on the 21st century baseball cap because it's so comfortable and you like it so much. And look in verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. And the reason I know you're wearing your 21st century baseball cap is you guys are thinking, well, how can you say this was fulfilled in 70 AD when the Bible says the gospel will be preached to the whole world? Last time I checked, Dave, the gospel hasn't gone on to the entire world. So your, what you're saying uh, can't be true. Well, hold on now. Take off that baseball cap. I know you put it on. Take it off again. Put the first century Hebrew suit on. We need to put the hat of the OGs on, right? The original gangsta. We got to put it on because we need to look at it in the context of the OGs. The Bible must be read within the context of the original audience. We don't have the right to impose our 21st century ideas, culture, or intent. And that's what we end up doing many times if we're not careful. The Bible must be interpreted understanding who this was originally for because that's the only way we're going to get original author's intent. And so let's look. How would the original audience have heard verse 14 and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come? Well, the word for world is the Greek word oikumene. Say it with me. Oikumene. It's kind of fun saying that, right? This is a word that was translated as the inhabited, civilized world. Let me explain. The origin of the word came from the Greeks to define an area inhabited by Greeks. And they did this in contrast to an area inhabited by barbarians. The Greeks were really stuck up. They felt that they were the civilized people and that everyone else were barbarians. And so they wanted to have a word that actually constituted the civilized people, them, as opposed to the barbarians, someone else. Now, when Rome conquered the Greeks, they kept the language. Rome loved to borrow from its conquered people. And I think that was one of ancient Rome's strengths. It was multicultural. They recognized that other cultures had things that were the best, better than their stuff, and so they would borrow it. And so the Romans especially loved everything Greek. They were in love with everything Greek, and they borrowed from uh, the Greeks extensively. 
Well, they borrowed this word oikumene that at one time meant an area inhabited by Greeks, the civilized world, and they actually enlarged it to mean the area inhabited or the inhabited uh, civilized world uh, inhabited by the Roman Empire. So oikumene, let me say this again, sorry, I said it wrong, meant the inhabited civilized world of the Roman Empire. It was just another word in the first century for the Roman Empire and all of its subjects. And you might say, well, that sounds good, but can you prove it? I can. Take uh, your Bibles, uh, look at Luke chapter 2. You guys know it as the Christmas passage, don't you? Right, Luke chapter 2. We're just going to look at one verse, verse 1. Look at it. It says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be registered. Now, here's my question. Was Caesar's census issued to the whole world? What about Parthia? The Parthian Empire was right next to the Roman Empire. Did Caesar have the authority to issue a census to their empire? No, he didn't. Well, what about Britannia? What about the Picts and the Caledonians and the Celts who Caesar hadn't conquered yet? Was this census applicable to them? They were not a conquered people. Well, I would say no. Well, how about India and Russia and China? People that have maybe even never heard of Caesar Augustus. Was this census and this decree for them? Well, we know, of course not. Caesar's census was not to the entire globe. Caesar's census was to the whole oikumene, to the inhabited civilized world that Rome controlled. The people living in the first century would have seen it that way. So when Jesus prophesied that the gospel of his kingdom would be preached to the whole oikumene, the whole world, as a testimony before the end would come, then that's what he meant. And by 70 AD, the empire saw the gospel preached throughout its peoples and borders, just as Jesus prophesied that it would. I want you to listen to what the Apostle Paul says. In Colossians, by the way, this was written in 62 AD. In Colossians chapter 1, look at it, verse 6. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, throughout the whole oikumene. Drop down to verse 23. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed. Look at those three words. Has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. You see, Paul, the missionary, uses Jesus' words and he says it has been proclaimed to the whole oikumene. And guess what? It happened in 62 AD. You see, Jesus fulfills everything that he promises. Amen? Well, some of you, you're saying, well, that's not satisfying at all. What about global missions? I mean, does Jesus care about global missions? What about the whole world hearing the gospel? We're to go to all the nations. We're to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. Does Jesus say anything in the Olivet Discourse about that? Yes, he does. In verse 31, when Jesus comes in judgment and sweeps away the old age and ushers in that new age, the created things are shaken only one thing remains, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And when that happens, in verse 31, that's when Jesus declares as the new covenant king the global gospel evangel uh, evangelization. We see that his messengers are sent to the elect from all over to gather them together. We're going to study that a little bit more next week, I promise. A lot of good stuff next week. But for this week, I just want us to rest on that. Hey, can I share with you? 
that we don't ever have to be embarrassed about Jesus. We can be excited. We can have conviction that what Jesus promises to us is absolutely yes and amen. And I wanna uh, take our time right now and prepare for offering, uh, offering, excuse me, communion. (laughs) If you could, go and grab the elements. Uh, I will administrate it. I will lead you in it. But if we could now take the new covenant offering, or offering, I keep saying offering, sorry, uh, the new covenant communion as a testament to Jesus' kingdom that cannot be shaken. And if we can, and Jesus uses the symbols of the bread and the cup as a symbol of the inauguration of the new covenant because he died for us, if we could take of uh, the bread that was broken for us. In Isaiah 53, it says that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was placed upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep, we've gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on Jesus, on Messiah, the sins of all of us. If you would take the body that was broken for you for the forgiveness of sins right now, Jesus also took the cup, saying, this is the new covenant in my blood. Take this whenever you drink it and remember me. Remember that you are in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And if you could take this, he became sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Can we take the cup right now? Amen. We're going to ask our praise team couple, our beautiful couple to come up and lead us in worship.